again every hour on the hour, huffing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first, but that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight, every hour on the hour. You're listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current events in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Michio Kaku to discuss string field theory. Also, we'll find out how sunspots are formed. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. Berkeley Crocs. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. Not too bad. It's a great week, isn't it? It's a it's a beautiful week. Oh, my God. Berkeley, it's uh, shining. I was talking about the Matrix movie that's coming up. Oh, the uh, the Matrix, yes. Yes, that's my whole life's meaning there. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've been, in fact, waiting since birth. In fact, before birth for the Matrix to come out. Free your mind. Free your mind. But uh, before we see that, you might want to read this new journal called Gut. Gut. Do you have the guts? I really don't know. Are we talking about the intestinal tract or uh, unified field theories? Uh, the intestinal tract. Oh, okay. And then, in fact, the story is about colorectal cancer. <laughs> you know, any any journalist entitled Gut has to have some article about colorectal cancer. Uh, in fact, rec- rectal cancer would be simple enough. But Have you had rectal cancer lately? Uh, not recently. But no, but if you're worried, you might want to cut down on your alcohol drinking. My alcohol drinking? Yes, yeah, a study ca- carried out in this article in Gut suggests that drinking large quantities of alcohol increases the risk of rectal cancer. And the study is quite interesting. There's basically no conclusions. They have not figured out what's causing it. And in fact, there's no correlation between cancer in the, in the colon. So apparently, even if you consume more alcohol, the cancer rate in the colon is still the same, but the one at the rectum is much higher, and they don't know why. Huh. Yeah. They think one possibility is that the liver can do so much in terms of breaking down the alcohol, and probably it inhibits our ability to break down carcinogens, and that's why we're getting these weird cancers. Yeah, but why, why would it be in the rectum and not just further up in the colon? That's, uh, <laughs> that's a very interesting <laughs> I, question. I would think further it'd be some your, kind of uh, like, what if you just squirted it up the other end instead <laughs> of drinking it? Maybe that might help. Yeah, then you'll get a uh, cancer in your, your throat. throat. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Oh, well, but uh, there is no conclusion here, and they just say that the who suggests eating less meat and more fruits and vegetables. I'm glad we have another study to show that. <laughs> Where can uh, our vast listenership find out about this? The latest edition of Gut. <laughs> well, unfortunately, this one doesn't come from uh, a journal as trendy as Gut. <laughs> 
but it is from our favorite journal. Oh, the PNAS. The PNAS, yes, indeed. From the gut to the PNAS, here we go. It's all about, do you know who your relatives are? I, I thought I did. Well, you can find out by looking at mitochondrial DNA. Uh, you can sequence mitochondrial DNA, and that tells you how closely related two people are, or in fact, two species are. Right, but that's only on your mother's side, is that right? Right. Mother's mitochondrial DNA is actually the one that passed along. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that all of our closest relatives may be the Cro-Magnons. Cro-Magnons? The Cro-Magnons. Yeah, so we're stupid. Well, no, no, not the Neanderthals, the, oh, the Cro-Magnons, oh, yes. So it was quite an interesting little study that was done uh, by looking at uh, DNA from samples of preserved Cro-Magnon man. Uh -huh. And what they showed was that modern human mitochondrial DNA is very, very similar to Cro-Magnon. Oh, very similar. Yeah, this compared to Neanderthal DNA, there's a bit of a difference there. Hmm. So there's always been sort of this competing hypothesis whether modern humans evolve from Cro-Magnon man, or whether they uh, evolve from multi-regional areas, Cro-Magnon man, for instance, interbreeding with Neanderthals. Right. So it's either the multi-regional hypothesis or sort of a single out-of-Africa hypothesis. Yeah, so they still had d discrimination back then, huh? <laughs> well, you know, it, it's kind of interesting how these things play out, and uh, some people are actually still um, supporting the multi-regional hypothesis, saying, well, the DNA evidence really hasn't shown it because it might be contaminated from modern samples. So, so this is pretty strong evidence to suggest that we descended from the Cro-Magnon from the Cro-Magnons only. Wow. Yeah, it's certainly intriguing. Puts another nail in the coffin of the multi-regional hypothesis. Right. The study was uh, done by David Caramelli of the University of Florence, Italy, and is published in the recent edition of our favorite journal, PNAS. PNAS. Well, right now I'm going to talk about our second favorite cancer. Our second favorite cancer. You know, it's hard to beat colorectal cancer, honestly. <laughs> prostate cancer. Prostate cancer. You don't want to get one of those. I don't know. My prostate's been quite inactive lately. <laughs> I think anything that happens to it is fine. Yeah, but if you're wondering, it happens to be the second leading cause of cancer deaths in American oh, men. Oh, is that right? Mm. One in ten men will develop it at some time during their lives. One in ten? Yeah. Wow. Which is pretty high. There's some good news coming out from our very labs at Berkeley, and you probably knew that we should be eating broccoli, right? I've, I've heard that broccoli is quite good for all kinds of things, including cancer. Right, or blocking the growth of cancer. So yeah. the latest study shows that the chemical in broccoli blocks the growth of prostate cancer. It actually blocks the growth of prostate cancer. Yeah, and it does it by leading to production of methane. It's considered an anti-androgen agent. So androgens are hormones which lead to the normal development of your prostate. But it turns out when people get older, it also is a key role in uh, promoting prostate cancer. So by eating more of these indolmethane-rich vegetables, you can counteract the uh, androgen effect and reduce your chance of prostate cancer. So a lot more broccoli in the uh, salads and yeah. how about cauliflower? That work too? I believe they're in the same family in the brassica genus. You know, cabbage, cauliflower, all that high, uh, very green stuff is really good for you. You think this will work for the rectal cancer as well? Um, it should. I mean, it should, right? Because the... once you eat your stuff, it just goes everywhere. Right. <laughs> you know, can use it as an epidural. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a fly. <laughs> Well, if anyone's interested, it's from the Journal of Biological Chemistry. JBC. JBC. They're covering prostate cancer now. Uh-huh, and it's uh, conducted by Leonard Beldane, professor in the uh, UC Berkeley College of Natural Resources. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, Professor Michio Kaku will join us to discuss the unification of forces in physics. So stay tuned. Shop 
to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, our universe is held together by a combination of four forces, gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak nuclear forces. But are these forces related to each other in some fundamental way? Well, scientists have been pursuing a grand unified theory for quite some time, and the answer, turns out, may lie with strings. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grocks to discuss issues in theoretical physics is Professor Michio Kaku, Professor Kaku is the Henry C. Matt Professor in Theoretical Physics at City University in New York. He is the creator of string theory, one of the leading contenders for the unification of these four forces. In addition, he's the author of nine books, the last two of which, Hyperspace and Visions, have become international bestsellers. He hosts Explorations, a weekly uh, radio science program, and is in town to receive an award at the Exploratorium for the Public Understanding of Science. Professor Kaku, uh, we're very pleased to have you on the program. I'm glad to be back in the Bay Area. We're glad to have you here. Um, curious if you could explain a little bit about this issue of the unification of the forces in physics and basically what the problems are and how we could go about solving this. Well, at the present time, many physicists believe that the greatest quest in the history of physics is the unification of all fundamental forces, perhaps into an equation no more than one inch long. Realize that E equals mc squared is only half an inch long, and it allows us to unlock the secret of the stars. Now we have something called the quantum theory, which allows us to describe light, the nuclear forces, the strong and the weak nuclear forces. But on the other hand, we have gravity, and gravity is described by Einstein's theory of relativity. So we now have two theories, the theory of the very small, the quantum theory, a theory of atomic physics, and the theory of relativity, the theory of the very big, the theory of the Big Bang, the theory of black holes. And the fundamental quest, of 2,000 years of investigation into the nature of space and time, matter and energy, is to unify these two great theories, relativity and the quantum theory, into one framework, which will allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. Einstein said that if we could get such a formulation, we would know God's thoughts. Einstein said that there has to be an old one, an old one that created the universe billions of years ago, and it had to be simple. It had to be elegant, this unification process. And today we think that at the instant of the Big Bang, all the four forces were united into a single superforce. And the universe today is very old. That's why the superforce is now cracked into four separate forces. But this is the greatest chase of all time. Many people think that whoever gets the final version of the unified field theory will be the next Einstein. And the theory that you've proposed to uh, unify these four forces is string theory. That's right. I'm the founder of string field theory, which is a branch of string theory. Mm -hmm. String theory itself was discovered quite by accident back in 1968. And the theory is so bizarre, so strange, that perhaps we were not destined to even see this theory in, in, the, in, the, in this century. It's a theory that exists in hyperspace, 10-dimensional, perhaps 11-dimensional hyperspace. And we now believe that everything you see around you are nothing but tiny little strings, vibrating strings. And if the strings vibrate in one frequency, it's called an electron. If it vibrates in another frequency, it's called a quark. And if it vibrates in yet another mode, it's called light. So just like a violin string 
has notes on it, and each note corresponds to a different kind of music, but it's the violin string that's fundamental, we believe that the subatomic particles are nothing but notes on a vibrating string, and that chemistry, all the laws of chemistry, can be reduced to melodies played out on these strings, that physics is nothing but the harmonies that we can play on these strings. The universe is a symphony of strings, and these strings in turn allow us to unravel the secret of the Big Bang itself. I see. And how does the, uh, the strings coalesce in some way to unify these four forces? When we look at the vibrations of the strings, we have notes, and these notes are the subatomic particles, the electrons, the quarks, the protons, the mesons, uh, everything we've been doing at Berkeley for the past uh, 40 years, mm -hmm. smashing atoms and looking at thousands of subatomic particles, can now be looked at nothing but music, nothing but music uh, emanating from these strings. However, when the strings move in space and time, it forces space and time to warp, exactly as Einstein predicted. So in other words, if Einstein had never lived, we would still have discovered Einstein's theory via string theory. String theory as a tiny byproduct gives you all of Einstein's theory and all of the quantum theory. That's the whole ball of wax. We want a single framework which gives us both relativity and the quantum theory. So it's a, it's a different framework which then uh, gives rise to uh, the, the quantum theory and, and everything else. That's right. It's a single framework that allows us to unify the very big, that is, the theory of relativity, with the very small, the quantum theory, and realize that for the past 50 years, some of the greatest giants of science have cracked their heads on this problem, and every single proposal, and there have been hundreds of them, have been shown to be inconsistent. The only game in town, the only theory which has survived every single challenge is string theory. Some people come up to me and say, Professor, maybe I don't like string theory. Give me another unified field theory. And the answer to that is, there is none. This is the only game in town. If you want to play the unified field theory, you either have to play this theory or create your own. <laughs> so uh, what evidence is there then to, to support uh, the, the string theory? At the present time, nothing. However, very soon, we're going to have gravity wave detectors coming online. In fact, this year, the first one will come online. It's a gigantic two-mile device based in Hanford, Washington, also Louisiana. And in 15 to 20 years, we're going to put them into outer space. These satellites will detect the instant of creation itself. Gravity waves from the instant of creation are still reverberating throughout the universe, very faint, but in 20 years' time, we will have the LISA satellite, three satellites orbiting in the orbit of the Earth around the sun, which will detect vibrations from the instant of the Big Bang, which are still reverberating throughout the universe. And that should give us a laboratory, a laboratory by which we could then once and for all figure out where the Big Bang come, came from and whether or not string theory is correct. And what if it happens that string theory turns out to be uh, disproven? Uh, well, either it's a theory of everything or a theory of nothing. This theory has astounded mathematicians. Uh, whole new branches of mathematics have emerged out of string theory. And so it's a beautiful, elegant artifice that either is totally correct or totally incorrect. You cannot fudge it. You cannot make one small mathematical object vary and without destroying the whole structure. So it's like a beautiful crystal. One small defect and the whole thing falls apart. So in other words, it has to be a theory of everything or a theory of nothing. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, as you mentioned earlier, apparently these strings are supposed to exist in uh, some 10-dimensional hyperspace. That's uh, right. Why, why don't we see these extra dimensions? Well, the world? historically, we thought that maybe these dimensions were very small. Now the latest version of string theory is something called M-theory, which mm-hmm. means that perhaps our universe could be a bubble or membrane, and that this membrane floats in 11-dimensional hyperspace, and as a consequence, we are fixed on a membrane. We cannot leap into hyperspace unless we have fantastic amounts of energy. Now, just last month at the University of Colorado, the very first experiment was done to detect the existence of another bubble floating in hyperspace. Our universe bubble may coexist with other bubbles out there, and we may be able to detect faint vibrations from other bubbles in hyperspace. And the first experiment was completed last month at the University of Colorado. The result was negative. However, it is the first of such an experiment to be conducted. So this is now serious business. Millions of dollars are now being spent looking for parallel universes. And this is not Twilight Zone. This is now hardcore physics funded by the U.S. government. It's amazing. If we were able to detect these other universes, would there be possibility of perhaps communicating with them or traveling to them? Well, in order to travel between universes, you have to have access to the Planck energy. The Planck energy is 10 to the 19 billion electron volts. That's one with 19 zeros after it. That is a quadrillion times more powerful than our biggest machine, which is based in Geneva, Switzerland, the Large Hadron Collider. So we don't think that anyone immediately will be able to leap into (laughs) hyperspace. However, in principle, if you had a microwave oven and you could heat up the microwave oven to the Planck energy, then you would have bubbles form inside your microwave oven, and these bubbles would be gateways to other universes in principle. And Stephen Hawking calls this space-time foam, Hmm. that if you had a super microscope, you could see that space-time itself is bubbly, that little bubbles are constantly forming, but these bubbles have a big bang and then have a big crunch real fast. So big bangs happen all the time. Big bangs happen inside the vacuum itself. So these big bangs are not interesting because you can't measure them, and they go into a big crunch very quickly. But if you could heat up space and get to the Planck energy, then these bubbles could expand to the point where they may become visible, or for that matter, they could become quite large. Now, I personally believe that this may be a tremendous device by which to save intelligent life in the universe. You see, our universe is accelerating. It's not slowing down. It's actually accelerating in size. And so this bubble is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's accelerating until we're all going to freeze to death uh, billions to trillions of years from now. The black holes will be the remnants of dead stars. Stars will blink out. Galaxies will become dark. And pretty soon the whole universe will become very, very cold and very dark. At that point, intelligent life can no longer exist. We're all going to freeze to death. So at that point, perhaps billions to trillions of years from now, we may be intelligent enough to create the Planck energy to escape into another universe. Hmm. Of course, again, I have to emphasize that this is still a theory, Mm -hmm. that the satellite data is still coming in slowly, and that in the next 20 years, we hope to have the satellite instruments and the atom smashers capable of giving us hardcore experimental evidence of the existence of other dimensions and the existence of alternate universes. So in other words, we now have a theory as to what happened before the Big Bang. We now believe there is a multiverse, not just a universe, uni means one, but we think there's a multiverse of bubbles, and bubbles form all the time. Big Bangs are happening even as we speak, and our universe had a bang about 13.7 billion years ago. 
we even have baby pictures of the Big Bang now, taken by satellites, gorgeous baby pictures of the Big Bang. But uh, we coexist, perhaps, with other universes. Now, many of these other universes are probably very boring. They're probably all made of neutrinos and electrons, and they don't have intelligent life on them. They don't have stable matter, as we know it. Our universe, in some sense, is special. It has DNA, and it takes billions of years to get DNA off the ground. And this DNA has created intelligence, consciousness. So our universe could be rather special among the pantheon of other universes. Indeed it might. Um, looks like we're running a little bit out of time, but I'm just curious. Another one of your major activities, then, is trying to give public awareness of these issues in physics and science in general. I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about how you got involved in public awareness of science. Yes, when I was growing up in the Bay Area as a child, it was very frustrating. I wanted to learn about Einstein and the fourth dimension and all these things I would hear about, but none of the science books could explain anything of these things to me. None of my science teachers could explain anything about the fourth dimension or hyperspace to me, and it was extremely frustrating. And I promised myself that if I ever became a professor of theoretical physics, I would write books, I would do TV programs, I would do radio programs to explain to young people and the curious exactly what is happening at the very frontiers of theoretical physics. And now that I'm a full professor of theoretical physics, I write books like Hyperspace and Visions, which became international bestsellers. I do a radio program called Explorations. I also do interviews with the Discovery Channel, the Learning Channel, uh, British Broadcasting, because I want to convey to the public the excitement that we are on perhaps the greatest hunt of all time. This is perhaps the culmination of 2,000 years of investigation into the nature of matter and energy ever since the Greeks asked the question, what is the smallest particle? And now we're closing in on the biggest game of all time, the theory of everything. And that's why I want to convey to the public the excitement, the sheer energy generated by our search for, quote, the mind of God. In other words, the mind of God could be music, the music of vibrating strings resonating in hyperspace. Let's see. Well, you were in town for an award ceremony at the Exploratorium. That's right. In San Francisco, at the Old Museum of Fine Arts, we have a gorgeous science museum that I recommend that everyone go to. It's operated by real scientists, not hacks or science writers. And I got an award from the Exploratorium, award for trying to explain to the general public all the basic advances in science. And I'm very pleased to have been here in the Bay Area to receive this award because I believe that the Exploratorium is one of the many ways, many key ways in which we can excite the public to get them interested in science, which is so vital to our standard of living, so vital to our health, so vital to the economy. And it is science which is the engine of prosperity. Well, Professor Kaku, we're certainly out of time right now, but I just want to thank you very much for, again, joining us on our program to help uh, increase public awareness of science and, and talking about string theory. Okay, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. You're just listening to Professor Michio Kaku discussing the string field theory for the unification of forces in physics. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, you can find out what is a sunspot. So stay tuned. Particle man, particle man. Particle can, what's he like? It's not important. Particle man, is he a dot or is he a speck? When he's underwater, does he get wet or does the water get him instead? Nobody knows. Particle man, triangle man, triangle man, triangle man hates particle man. They have a fight, triangle wins, triangle man. 
universe man, universe man, size of the entire universe man, usually kind to smaller man, universe man, he's got a watch with a minute hand, millennium hand, energy on hand, and when they meet it's a happy land, powerful man, universe man, person man, person man, hit on the head with a frying pan, lives his life in a garbage can, person man, is he depressed or is he a mess, does he feel totally worthless, who came up with person man, degraded man, person man. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, have you ever wondered what is a sunspot? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Ever wonder what sunspots are? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Let's try to spot a sunspot from as near to the sun as we can possibly get. Come on. As we approach the giant blazing star, the first thing you need to know is that, obviously, today's going to be a scorcher. But we won't get too close. We'll stop at the outermost layer known as the photosphere. This layer of swirling gas is about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And silhouetted against this brilliant, glowing background are the small, dark patches that astronomers often see as sunspots from Earth. There's one just ahead. See how it's darkest at its core? That core is called the umbra, and the lighter, gassy haze around it is the penumbra. But wait, do you feel what I'm feeling? As we approach the middle of the sunspot, it's actually rather cool, at least 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than the sun's photosphere layer. And I'm feeling something else, too, a magnetic field, which is what scientists think causes sunspots. These magnetic fields slow down the flow of heat from the sun's center. And when that happens, patches of cooler gas form, which are denser than the super hot gas around them. This gives them their darker appearance. And a sunspot is born. Sunspots last from several days to just over a month. Uh, but since this show lasts only two minutes, it's already time to return to Earth. Hope today's show hit the sunspot. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. You know, I think the Everyday Science Lady is the real star of the show. She is. She's the star of my life. I wonder how big her sunspots are, though. <laughs> I don't know, but every every time she does a show, it, it, it hits my spot in, in just the right place. <laughs> Maybe if you go to her penumbra. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and now it's time for a review of a play that we saw. Uh, we had directors on the program of Partition. That's right. Barbara Oliver and Ira Hoffman, the right. playwright, right? Playwright, yeah. This was a play about the Indian mathematician Ramanujan, and he was self-taught and was taken to Cambridge to uh, be educated in their sort of a clash of cultures. Right. Well, the play is more about his relationship with Thomas Hardy, the English mathematician who brought him there and collaborated with him. Right. And uh, also their, their search for a solution to Fermat's last theorem, uh-huh. uh, which wasn't solved until recently, in fact. Right. And we're not even sure if that's the actual proof that Fermat had himself. Right. much longer. Right. The initial proof was supposed to be in the notebook margin. Right. Just in the margin. Yeah. 
it was quite a good play, mm-hmm. I thought. Well acted. Definitely. Well, and I blended both the mathematical side of it, the academic side, as well as very interpersonal relationships. Right. I think partly like, scientists it may appeal because focuses on, on the conflicts we often have between our humanity and being so obsessed with our science or the cold facts of nature. Right. In a way, I guess the science distances from the human relations. Right. So that was sort of an interesting dichotomy that was set up in the play. Yeah. I agree. And it had a nice venue. Oh, definitely. The Aurora Theater is one of the best places I've been to. Yeah, if people haven't been down to the Aurora Theater yet, you definitely check that out. It's very cozy. It's small, but yeah, you feel intimate with your audience and uh, players on stage. Right. This is only playing for a couple more weeks, I imagine. Right. So definitely go check that out. You give it a thumbs up? Yeah, me too. I'll give it a thumbs up. <laughs> or two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. I'll use both my hands. We have four <laughs> thumbs up. Four thumbs up. All right, four thumbs up. All right, I know it's the craziest question of the answer to last week's question of the week. Do we really need oxygen to survive? Hey, you might not really think so in the highlands, and it's not really true. Only us humans and various other mammals and other animals as well. But the problem is, not all living organisms use the oxygen. In fact, there are all sorts of anaerobic bacteria that do not use the oxygen. That's not really very important for them either. Ah, it's really great, and even more robust. You can have all kinds of systems based not on even oxygen or carbon. It can be silicon-based. And nor do they have carbon as an electron sink. So oxygen is not really required for life, only for us Scots. Especially those uh, bacteria that cause your feet to go smelly. Hey, it's not uh, smelly. And this week's question of the week, what is a matrix? You cannot be told what the matrix is. You must see it for yourself. But if you know what it is or think you know what it is, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't want anything, but you might just free your mind. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel. Pixel.